This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today we have two remarkable men on Dreamland. We're going to be talking to Dr. Raymond Moody and his close friend and frequent co-author, Paul Perry, about life after life. Of course, Raymond Moody, in 1975, published his groundbreaking book, Life After Life, and coined the phrase, near-death experience, which became part of our culture. They have a new book out together called Proof of Life After Life, Seven Reasons to Believe There Is an Afterlife, uh, with a foreword by Eben Alexander, who's also been on Dreamland, of course. And I welcome Raymond back after many years. I think uh, Raymond was last on when we were a live show in uh, a radio show back in the days when radio existed. Which is That's right. <laughs> in any case, welcome <laughs> to Dreamland, both of you. I'm so glad you're with me. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thank you. It's so good to be with you again, too. Well, good. I'm glad. All right. Well, this is this is a step ahead, proof of life after life. Right. Now, of course, you know, you're talking to someone who has uh, been a, uh, I mean, my wife had a near-death experience in 2004 and came back uh, in, after her death in 2015 in a ways that were not it was not possible to deny but my listeners know all about that what they don't know is why this book is called proof of life after life coming from somebody who would often say i don't have i don't know about the afterlife i know that that about a near death experience but not the afterlife something major has changed raymond what is it? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's getting older, Whitley. You know, I was, before I went to medical school, I was a professor of philosophy and logic. And I was, logic is, you know, since the time I was a kid, it's one of my favorite subjects. And uh, the notion of proof comes from logic. Okay. And so when I first started interviewing people with these experiences back in the 60s and then pretty soon people are coming up to me and Raymond, is there any proof? Okay. And so I, I went back to Bertrand Russell and Gottlob Frege and Wittgenstein and, and, and the Principia Mathematica. I mean, you know, and I, I never related. And so what I finally realized is that the average person who asked me whether there's a where we whether we have proof of an afterlife is somebody who's not interested in symbolic logic like I am, but who is typically, as you would know, Whitley, has lost a loved one to death or are facing death themselves or just in midlife having this philosophical awakening. And so where I have come to it, Whitley, is a long process. I fought this the whole way because, you know, the best way of inquiry is to try to knock things down, not to support them, because, you you know, what you end up with is you can be more, it's more reliable, right? And so I, ne- I never believed that thing about, oh, this is oxygen deprivation to the brain, because one of my own professors of medicine, 
when I first went to medical school, told me about her experience when she was unsuccessfully trying to resuscitate her mother. And as her mother was dying, she herself, this physician, said that she got out of her body. She saw the scene from above. She saw her mother now in spirit form. She saw the her mother recede into this tunnel in light with the relatives coming forward and so on. And, and subsequently, hundreds of people like that who were not ill or injured themselves, but who were there at the death of someone else. And that as that person was dying, the bystander had all of these elements that we think of as a near-death experience. Therefore, I knew from the very beginning that this is not oxygen deprivation to the brain, right? It's because if the bystanders who are not ill or injured have the same experience, well, you know, it's something else. But that does the fact that it's not oxygen deprivation to the brain doesn't mean that, therefore, it is an afterlife. And where my long process of fighting this, because it's still very counterintuitive to me, Whitley, was, you know, trying to think of all the reasons against it. And I just, I'll tell you the truth, I just gave up. I I can't think my way out of it. You mentioned Eben Alexander, and and you probably know of him. Oh, sure. I've interviewed Eben. Yeah, and probably know also of Anthony Chikoria, the, the, uh, orthopedic doctor in New York who had the near-death experience. And, and my point is I've got a lot of medical friends whose absolute judgment, I was absolutely trust if something, heaven forbid, were to happen to me. And these medical friends of mine who have had a near-death experiences, and they all, you know, unanimously say that far from being, you know, dreamlike, that this experience was more real than what you and I are experiencing right now. More real than real is what they say. So where I have come is I've just gotten to the point where I can't think my way out of it. So to my utter astonishment, there is an afterlife. And when people ask me this, what I have finally figured out that the average person wants to know when they ask me about proof is this. They are asking, Raymond, is it a rational thing to expect and anticipate that there is an afterlife? And I say, absolutely it is. And not only that, but technical developments in the field of logic and how to think about thinking, which are just, you know, would be boring to the average person who's interested in the afterlife. But they're interesting to me. And so from that point of view, I can say, yeah, sure. The classical philosophical objections to the question of an afterlife have now been overcome logically. So the way I put it together is to my utter astonishment, like I say, there's an afterlife. I give up. (laughs) I really have asked people, you know, tell me if it's not an afterlife, what is it? I give up. (laughs) We're talking to Paul Perry and Raymond Moody, the co-authors of Proof of Life After Life. And Paul, I would like to ask you why you signed on for this. Uh, I've seen some of your documentaries. And folks, by the way, uh, do go to Paul Perry Productions and you can follow up with Paul's work because Among other things, not only is he a prolific author and co-author, he's also a fabulous documentary filmmaker. Thanks, Bill. 
Yeah. So tell us, how did you, how, why did you sign on to Proof of Life After Life, which is, after all, a step beyond where Raymond and you have been all along? Well, you know, for, for years now, I mean, I've worked together with Raymond for 33 years, and Raymond has been working, studying near-death experiences for at least 20 years more than that. And uh, uh, we realized early on, at least I realized early on in, in my dealing with Raymond when I wrote The Light Beyond, that uh, uh, near-death experiences are subjective experiences, meaning that only the person who has or has them can actually experience it. That anything beyond that is would be secondhand and not subjective. But we also realized that in studying all the near-death experiences that we did, there was a category that was mixed in that was almost like a treated like kind of a secret uh, uh, category of near-death experiences called shared death experiences. And the shared death experience, as, as Raymond indicated earlier, is an objective form of near-death experience. What that means is, is that a person who uh, is a bystander to someone's death is suddenly tapped in to their, to their, uh, the events of their death experience. So you'll have people who are like, there's precognitive experiences in which someone might wake up in the middle of the night and they'll see, uh, somebody, a friend, a loved one standing at the end of the bed and they'll say, uh, uh I'm, I'm dying. And I wanted you to know I've died. I've died. And that is a shared death experience is that this is someone who dies in this case <clears throat> unexpectedly and they show up to tell to tell their friends about uh the fact that they've passed away there's other types of shared death experiences but you but you get the idea through that oh sure i've it, i've had that in my own life uh, my wife uh not only had a near death experience in 2004 when it came time for her to pass away it was very much a shared experience because she said we were my son and daughter-in-law and I were in the were, were eating dinner and she was very deep in the next room and mm -hmm. we knew that she would not be with us for very long. And she had already said in my daughter-in-law's head, she, my daughter-in-law about an hour before had heard, I want to die in red pajamas. <laughs> and she jumped up and rushed out to the store and bought a pair of red pajamas. And we had put her in the red pajamas. Wow. And then but that was Anne testing to see whether or not she was getting through. I, my wife was very skilled at all of this and <laughs> many, she was a really remarkable human being. But then she says in my head, I'm dying right now, witty. And I ran in to the bedroom, lay down beside her put my hand on her chest, her heart beat seven times and stopped. And that was Annie's passing. And I'm not, my listeners already know all this story and it's in my book, Afterlife Revolution. So we're not going to go there right now. Sure. What I want to explore next is this question of, uh, uh, of anesthesia, because mm -hmm. I've read quite a bit about anesthesia being proof that the, the fact that we are turned off proof that there is no afterlife 
So could either or both of you talk talk to this question of anesthesia and how whether or not it is indeed what the skeptics are saying? This, <laughs> you know, Willie, I just, you know, the real thing we're dealing here is with a philosophical point of view or theory called epiphenomenalism, which is the theory that there is no independent reality to consciousness, but that the only reality is the material substance of the brain and the electrochemical reactions to it. And as much as there's a people who just have that as their faith, as you know, and, you know, you know, they can't philosophically think to realize enough to realize that that is totally unprovable. Right. It's it's just as you can say with just as much rigor that as David Hume once said, the great skeptic of all skeptics said, um, as to the impressions which arise from the senses, in my opinion, it is utterly impossible for reason to decide whether they arise from the object, like the epiphenomenalist thing, or from the creative power of our minds, or from our author of our being. And the real skeptic, I don't know. Okay, so... And where I've come to is, man, my understanding of consciousness, um, Whitley, is that I think that one thing that has really been forgotten about it or not paid attention to, uh, maybe because of Descartes in the long run, but it is the plain fact that human consciousness is a storytelling instrument. Hmm. The... um, uh, I think it's called the Kulikov effect. Cinematographers say if you take any two random objects like a tube of ointment and a a telephone and you present them in sequence to the mind, then the mind automatically starts weaving a story to connect them. And so yeah, there's a lot about that in cinematography. Uh, I went to film school and we studied that, that, that effect very carefully. Go ahead. And so, you know, in the consciousness is story. And, and, you know, the David Hume, the great skeptic in his essay on the afterlife, where he said, you know, it's, it's logically incomprehensible. Nonetheless said, he said, you know, I think the only kind of view of the afterlife that a rational person could entertain would be the reincarnation. And he didn't say why, but, you know, Hume was a historian. And I figure probably what was going on was that as a historian, historians realized the essential, you know, the importance of narrative in the human experience. And so I think that, you know, it's, um, we're all asleep to some degree. I know I am, but, um, you know, scientism and, and, Epiphenomenalism all around. That's just a dream, <laughs> but they don't realize it's just a dream. <laughs> the, the reality, is, you know, is, is, is far more complicated than, um, than epiphenomenalism can ever imagine. Now, one of the arguments, of course, is that the scientific method can't be used in, in this, in, in this type of study. There you go. Because there's no measurable phenomenon to 
But I wonder if that's actually true at this point. I, I've read, uh, wasn't there an article in the Scientific American a few years ago about the fact that there were changes in the brain? Right. Yeah. Could either of you speak to that? Well, that's a, a recent study from, uh, well, Sam Parnia, uh, who was looking at how how deep a person could go into death and still come back. And uh, in some of the cases, he had people who had no brain waves for over an hour. Yet they were still, according to the, uh, and then then that all started up again. They all started to experience consciousness internally and, and eventually, some of them externally if they survive. Uh, so there's been a lot of measurable research. There's been, let's put it this way, some measurable research done on this. But I, but I also think that stories are actually measurable in their own way. Yeah, it's it's yeah. It, you can't get a proof from the stories, but you can reformat your mind to think about the stories in a new way. But you can also get consistency of experience. Yeah, I think you know, Willie. I, I taught logic and epistemology. One of the great fallacies in the whole American spirit is scientism. And when you taught epistemology, which is theory of knowledge, right? And so the first couple of days I'd ask the kids, what do you think knowledge is? Well, even the ones who were religious fundamentalists, you know, what they'd come up with is, mm-hmm. well, knowledge is science. What does that mean? Well, eventually they'd get up the formulation that scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge, is what they'd say. And then I'd write that on the board. Scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge. Mm-hmm. I'd say, is that what you think? And they'd say, yeah. And so I'd draw a rectangle around it, and I'd point to it. Well, how do you know that? And there's only two possibilities. Number one, you can say, um, scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge, and I know that by scientific method is a is re- reasoning in a circle. But the other option, that scientific method is the only rational means of securing knowledge, and I know that by philosophy or history or literary theory or the law or you name it, that's a self-contradiction. And my point is, you know, the, the, these, the, the parapsychological psycho, psychical research wing never got around to asking the preliminary question, what kind of question is the question of life after death? They went right to, oh, it's got to be a scientific question, right? And that, you know, looks, look where they've gotten with that. The question of life after death is a is not yet a scientific question because just as you were saying, Whitley, what in the world, what kind of observation would you make? To, it's, it's, and so what they end up saying is, oh, we got to, Thing he the medium thing new things the medium couldn't possibly have known about my grand. Well, he think about it. That sentence that we hear all the time: 
the medium knew things about grandma that the medium couldn't possibly have known. Isn't that a self-contradiction? Yes, it is. So what I'm saying is <laughs> we are really on the verge of a whole new way of looking at the afterlife. And it's already started happening. But we can actually reformat our minds to think logically in entirely new ways about the question of life after death so that when subsequently we happen to have a near-death experience, we'll come back and we'll no longer have to say, you know, I just have no words for it, blah, blah, blah. We'll, they'll have a whole new way of talking about it and explaining it. And it's already happened, by the way, but but I won't get into that. But it's, We need uh, to take a little break yeah. first, and then we will get into it because that's why we're here. We're talking to Raymond Moody and Paul Perry about their new book, Proof of Life After Life. Uh, we were discussing the issue of scientism and science prior to our brief break. For those who you who were on the free feed, I'll just remind you. And, you know, I reflect, I must reflect that, uh, science can use its method to prove to prove the the way phenomena that it can detect function, but not that it can't detect. But that isn't necessarily all that, that's not the end of everything, because there are many things that, for example, uh, the scientific method could not have been used in 1850 to prove the existence of radio, because they couldn't detect it. That doesn't mean it wasn't there. Because it was. Right. Now, we're under. We're, I would like to now move to this light that mm. that we talk about and and that that is experienced by near death experiencers. This movement into the light, and I would like to ask you both to comment on the idea that this light itself may be conscious. That this transfer it, it it may be conscious you know you said at some point raymond a very interesting thing that we may not know what the afterlife is like we have made a lot of assumptions about it but we have no reason to know tell us a little bit about paul if you will first yeah. your thoughts about the light and what it may mean and what it may be and then we'll ask raymond to do the same well, several years ago, I was involved in uh, a study in Seattle, actually, called the Transformation Study. And what we did was we looked at, uh, and this is we being a number of doctors, psychologists, uh, anesthesiologists, on and on. And we looked at the type, the type and the duration of change uh, caused by a near-death experience. And we did that by examining uh, everything from children who had had experiences uh, to uh, adults and elder adults as well. And we found that the most transforming aspect of a near-death experience is the light, that, that people who had the most long-term effect of their near-death experience always linked it to a, a powerful exposure to this light. And they would carry it further by saying that uh, they would call the light God or Jesus or Muhammad, or some even called it Santa Claus. But but they said that there was, number one, they could never really see 
an individual in the light, but it's just how their mind perceived it. And it was also the sense that as soon as they were exposed to the light, they were exposed to a number of other things as well, including a sense of, uh, of uh, universal knowledge, that they were somehow downloaded, if you will, with universal knowledge. And, and they said, kids would say, well, the light is where all the good things is. I mean, that was quoted uh, many times from children, that all the good things are in the light. I didn't know what was, I didn't know who was in there, but, but it was, it was full of good things. And I think that's uh, definitely uh, an indication that the life, that the light is the most transforming aspect of a near-death experience. Uh, Raymond, you are you are a believer in God as a separate entity from us, but you've also said that we don't know what the afterlife is actually like, that it may be very different from our assumptions. And I relate this to the fact that if you become a being of light, you're going to be living by entirely different laws than we live in the yes. world. There you go. So, yeah, so speak and, about that a little bit. Yeah, I don't get too fussy about the exact details because what everybody tells me and, and tells you too is that really there are no words, right? And and so because that's the most common thing people say, no matter how articulate they are, I just don't have the words to describe this. And so where I have come just in my quest, uh, you know, I've never been religious per se, but I have a relationship with God is, is how I like to put it. And um, where I have come with it, Whitley, is sort of taken up on that I, idea we were talking about before, the nation, the nature of your consciousness is story or narrative. And in the life review, time stands still and you see everything you've ever done, not just from your point of view, but from the point of view of the other people with whom you've interacted, right? And so think about it. At that moment, you are that person, right? You are in your life review. You are the other person. You take that point of view. And so where I put this all together is it's like that great mystic, uh, oh, gosh, what was his name? Um, Meister Eckhart said. Oh, yes. His work um, I know well. Yeah. And he said, um, the eyes with which I see God are the same eyes with which God sees me. And that's where I've come to it. It's like I think it's another person said it's like we're like the fingertips of God. and um, and. So, you know, that's where I've come on it. I think that it's it's like where I've come in my thinking and forced into it because the things I heard. I, but I um, I gather that, you know, we live this story and then we die and we go through some incomprehensible process and then we're back on some other story. And personally, I hope and I bet you do, too, that that Giordano Bruno was right, who was burned alive for saying in 1600 that that reincarnation is not just here on this planet, but that reincarnation takes place between the worlds in his great, you know, the infinite universe and worlds that he wrote. One of the most brilliant people who ever lived. I've read his treatise on memory, and it's... 
extraordinary. You can remember anything if you un understand his method. Uh, you know, you 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 said something I think very extraordinary just now in in uh, in the brief mention of Meister Eckhart, which I have been a student and my wife a student of Meister Eckhart for many many years. We are the fingertips of God, and and that understanding that there is a an egoless part of our presence, and the ego is the fingertips pressing into the real, into the physical world. That's that, but, but that's not who we are. Yes. And, and this gets me to, to exploring, uh, beyond the near death experiences. Uh, you have a quote from Plato in your book. No one knows whether death is really the greatest blessing a man can have. Uh, <laughs> But they fear it is the greatest curse, mm -hmm. as if they knew it well. That's and right. What you were bringing to this is story. Yeah. And aren't we our stories? That's what we are. We are God's stories. That's what I. Yeah. That we, we are, are the finger, fingertips of God. That's that's exactly right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So. And you know what? Let me throw some more in this. Through the, through the transformation study that we did in Seattle, uh, there were a number of things that really made us think this is exposure to those fingertips. The near-death experience is an exposure to those. And, and people are altered greatly uh, by even the briefest near-death experience. For example, we found that, that people who have near-death experiences have a decrease in death anxiety, substantial decrease that they have a higher zest for living, which was defined as, as uh, being type A without the anger. Hey, that have, goes along exactly with another thing that Plato said in his old crotchety old age, he said. He said, you know, if you think about it realistically, a human life is not a very serious thing. Yeah. He said, we are God's toys. <laughs> and he said, the best way of life is just to sort of play, play at it. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the first things my wife said after she died to me. She said, this is all a game, Whitley. I've and I said, a game? And she said, it's a serious game, but it's a game. <laughs> yeah. So people also get, I'll finish this list of things that people happens to people as a result of a near-death experience. One is is that they they seem to have a higher intelligence, that people kind of evolve into into higher beings. And they also, which is, I think, most interesting to me, they have an increase in psychic abilities. We found that people who have near-death experiences, on the average, have four times as many verifiable psychic experiences as people who have not had a near-death experience. That's interesting, um, because the um, it, the other thing I discovered is that they they cease to have much fear of death, and you you touched on that, and that was certainly my, Anne's experience. She after her NDE, she wasn't afraid of death at all, and in fact, when she got a terminal brain tumor. She said, I want to die a conscious death and I don't, and I don't want to die it. I want to live it, Whitley. And you have to be the one 
who makes that happen. Mm -hmm. And so I did. And I made sure that she was conscious as long as her body could be. And uh, uh, she uh, uh, she was not in the even slightly afraid. No, no not at all. Life scares me, but not death. <laughs> you don't well, want, <laughs> you don't want any pain in the process, though. That's the exception. Yeah. But, right. Well, I'll tell you, folks, just so the listeners know, what scares me is not life or death. It's allergies, and I'm having an allergy attack today. <laughs> that, that, that's nothing new. My listeners know I'm always having allergy attacks. Well, good company. I'll yeah, tell you. Me too, Billy. And you know something, Willie? Another thing, I can pretty much guarantee that you have realized this, that I'm going to say yourself, although you might not have put it in these words. But have you noticed that since the 70s, the afterlife is coming down and infusing this life. There's not anymore the the firm boundary that there was. You think back to 1970, right? Well, what's happened in the interim is there, because of the advent of CPR, there's vast numbers of people who've been over there and back, including some of them with the chronic heart problems that have been there and back a number of times over their life. So that the afterlife, partly due to the CPR technology, is kind of infusing itself into this life because there's a lot of people here who are really kind of in their minds over there. And what what we have found in the books we've written, because we've written six books together, uh, is that over the years you have more and more medical doctors who are having or are seeing near-death experiences and, sh- and shared death experiences. And, uh, and it, when, when word of this kind of creeps into society from that side, from your, from your trusted medical doctor, people really start to take uh, note of it more than they did in the past. Well, I'm a medical doctor, and that's why I was so long in coming to it believe this well that's true but you know, wow. as it's, right you know it's like i mean i give up there is i can't think of any way out of saying that to my utter astonishment there's an afterlife i if it isn't the afterlife what is it i don't know and you know when you get to share death experiences raymond had a, uh, an event happened to him in in milan italy he was at, speaking at a conference, and at the end of his talk, a medical doctor cornered him and, and said, uh, uh, I just had, I had a shared death experience just the other day. And he had done a minor surgery on a patient who had cardiac arrested. And he worked on him, worked on him to keep him alive. And this must have gone on for some time. And he was, he was ready to call it. He was ready to give up. And just as he was ready to, the man's wife ran in from the waiting room and she said, my husband just appeared to me. She had no idea that this was going on in the operating room. My husband just appeared to me and said, keep trying. I'm going to, I can come back. My husband told me that you think he's dead. <laughs> so <laughs> keep on trying. <laughs> and, and so then when the doctor resuscitated the guy, that's the first thing that, he told the doctor, 
And, you know, it's it puzzled beyond belief. Actually. Totally out of it. The, uh, uh, I want to move on to precognitive, precognitive experiences, which mm-hmm. are a fascinating subtext Very much so. of this whole thing. And, and I'm really opening the question to either of you, because you could both speak about it in slightly different in, in ways, which adds a nice dimensionality to the whole interview. Uh, that uh, uh, tell us a little bit about this whole process of precognitive experiences uh, involving death and the afterlife. Well, I don't know. I, I don't know how I could talk about. Process. I, can, I can talk about it a little bit. Talk about you mentioned it in, you, you, there's the chapter in the book in, about it. Yeah, when I was a kid, and you, I bet you probably had this experience too, Whitley, when you were a thinker. And, you know, I quickly figured out that something is wrong with the idea of time. <laughs> then when I became an undergraduate philosophy student, I heard if Aristotle said, what is time? He said it's the parent, the past, the present, and the future. But he said the past doesn't exist, the future doesn't exist, and try holding on to the present. Time is is something we act like we understand, but it's very enigmatic and incomprehensible. And my wife Whitley is is much smarter than me. She's very brilliant. She is just really brilliant, but and and thankfully for me, she's totally non-intellectual, right? She went to art school, studied fashion and broadcasting. So you know, but but several years ago, my non-philosophical wife was standing in the living room and just kind of looked far away, and she said. Time is not real. And I said, yeah, yeah, I figured that out too. But, you know, time is so bizarre. And um, in terms of the dying process, it does seem that as as you have talked to Eben Alexander, said, he just back to something you were saying earlier, it's, I asked Eben one time, I said, over here, the axes by which we orient ourselves are time and space. But over there, there is no such thing, thing as time or space. So how do you orient yourself? Yeah. And he said, the axes are love and knowledge. That's how you orient yourself. But there's, but there's an awful lot of moving parts when you get into something like precognition. I mean, I can give you, I'll give you a personal example, okay? Uh, years ago, when, when my mother was dying, she was dying of Alzheimer's. And... Uh, on the Sunday that she died, I received a phone call from Vernon Neppy, who was the head of neuropharmacology at University of Washington. Vernon and I had worked on a book idea for some time, and then we uh, parted because we were both busy with other things. And I hadn't spoken to Vernon in five years. And Vernon calls me up on Sunday, and, and, he, and he says, you know, I was sitting here reading the newspaper, and uh, a voice told me, a female voice told me to call Paul Perry. So I ignored it. And he said, I kept reading the paper and I got back to the sports section. And he said, this voice again said, call Paul Perry. So I'm calling you. I have no idea why I'm calling you. And, and I told him that my mother was ill 
and she had Alzheimer's. And he would be the perfect person to talk to because he was uh, the head of neuropharmacology. So he talked to me about a number of things he had tried uh, in, re- in I'll, I'll use the word reviving, uh, people who had had Alzheimer's, including electroshock therapy and different types of drugs. And he was saying, suggest these to your doctor because it's, you know, it's a last chance situation. In the meantime, I'm getting a call. So I said, okay, Vernon, I'll call you back. And I got a call from the care facility where my mother was, and they told me that she had just passed away. Now, the moving parts in this to me are, why would she ever contact Vernon? And uh, what did she expect? And why didn't she somehow, you know, she, you know, she did a very roundabout way of contacting me. But she didn't know Vernon, but she knew I had been working with him in the past. So to me, those are moving parts that are fairly unexplainable. Yeah. And, and you know, so many people, Whitley, and I'm sure you've heard this, hear the same things I do. It's like so many people, just ordinary people, just bumble into some kind of thing like that. That's, where they that's see, right. They see something that unfold in the future. It, oh, my God. And, and to a horror of, in my life was in 1970. My wife was pregnant it's like this was in june we both awoke at the same time with the same dream that we were losing the baby she was seeing my her part i was seeing mine and could i mean i won't go into detail but oh my god then 24 hours later it happened just like in the dream i mean i reality is just so completely bizarre and to get into the actual process of these uh it's very difficult because we don't really understand the, the the gears and the levers that make it happen. Yeah. You, you know, know, part of my right. career was I was in a maximum security unit for the criminally insane. People like you read about in the National Enquirer who ground their mother and father up in a meat grinder. And so it was not a patient, by the way. And did. <laughs> right. And so, you know, I was dealing with the, you know, psychotic killers as a daily routine for, you know, quite a long time. And and so what I really finally came up to in that arrangement is that really and you must have felt this, too, Whitley, that I'm surprised that more people aren't psychotic. Given that, you know, this strange world we have to figure out and put together is a very stressful thing. It's like, and no wonder so many people take solace in some kind of simple-minded ideology or whatever. You can't blame them, but it's like, to me, it's just a lot more fun to face the fact that I don't know much of anything. And, uh, and you know, I had that feeling when I looked through a telescope at age seven or eight and I've never had any reason to retract it or modify it. Yeah. And you know, you, you oftentimes think, well, not too many people experience these, but they do. And the way you could actually find it, if, if, uh, if someone is out there as a good public speaker, they could stand up in a Denny's. Yes. Announce to people, because I did this one time. When I was first do my first book, I was working out with Raymond. Uh, I went to a movie with a number of friends, and we stopped at Denny's on the way back to have a meal, and we started talking about what we were doing, what we were doing in our lives. And when I talked about this with them, 
a good number of people at, at the table said, well, that's phony. That doesn't really happen. And so with a great amount of anger and courage, I stood up and announced to the 20 or so people in the Denny's what I do for a living and what I was currently working on. And I asked if they had had in their family or for themselves had had near-death experiences or had had shared-death experiences. And out of the 20 people, 12 or 15 of those people not only said they had had things happen, but they were willing to talk about it. You know, it's an example of the fact that we are more than we tell ourselves that we are. But but we have, unfortunately, for our free dreamlanders, free listeners, we have come to the end of the first part of the show. And we will be continuing on talking about out-of-body experiences and how it is that they indicate an afterlife. This very, very fascinating book, Proof of Life After Life, Empower Yourself. How do you do it? Well, you read the seven reasons to believe there is an afterlife. You listen to these two very convincing guys, Raymond Moody and Paul Perry, and you're going to get somewhere. Let's get past the fear, because the fear is what is preventing us from what Raymond alluded to a little earlier, which is basically dropping the veil between the living and the dead and becoming a new kind of human being. Uh, so, Free Dreamlanders, thank you very much for being with us. And subscribers, we're going to keep right on keeping them. Okay, uh, we're going to continue on. Uh, why OBEs indicate an afterlife? First of all, I have to ask you whether either of you have ever had an OBE. I have. Tell us about it. Well, it was so... Uh... It was funny and it was short, but it was effective. I was doing, uh, I used to practice yoga a lot. And I was in a yoga session. And when I finished it, there's a shavanasa, I think it's called, where you just lay there and, and, and relax from the session you just had. And all of a sudden, I was at the ceiling looking down at myself. And then all of a sudden, I was back. And and I went to the instructor afterwards, and, and I told her what happened. And she says, well, of course it happened. That's what's supposed to happen uh, when you have a really effective session of yoga. So it made me realize that, number one, it's supposed to happen. And uh, people fear it oftentimes because it's been made, it, well, it's been creepy. It's been made creepy by society. It's been made creepy by movies, things like that. It's the stuff of horror films sometimes. And I think a lot of people need to step beyond the, the ghost image of a horror film and, and see what a ghost really is or see what an out-of-body experience really is. And how maybe it's pretty natural. It's your consciousness separates from your body. Uh, and that's probably one of the greatest proofs that consciousness can survive independent of the body is an out-of-body experience. Raymond, uh, Aristotle wrote about our body experiences in 300 BC. You tell us a little bit about his experience and what he wrote about. Well, I remember that he wrote about Hermotimus, uh, H-E-R-M-O-T-I-M-U-S, who was well known in the 
what we call archaic Greece just before the classical period, say around 700 BCE, somewhere in that order. He was known all, all over Greece for the ability to leave his body and to acquire information at a distant point and to come back. And so uh, even 200 and uh, probably 300 years later, Aristotle mentioned him. That was so impressive to the to the Greeks. And it's now this part is Raymond Moody's speculation that comes next. But I have always assumed since I was an undergraduate that that it's that this was a big factor in the origin of what we call the mind body problem in the early philosophers, because they realized that there is um, there's apparently from Hermotimus that the mind can leave the body. So there's two. So then which takes precedence and all. And there was, you know, a lot of thinking about that in the early Greek philosophers and still, by the way, unresolved. It's uh, personally, I have never been able to be a physicalist because you have to make too many inferences to assume that there is a physical world as, as we seem to see it. Well, um, no, you're not talking, I don't have to worry about arguing that over here. Mm-hmm. This is not a physicalist, and I don't yeah. think many physicists are either. Exactly. exactly. Because the physical world is a foundation. Uh, you know, I think the, probably the truest thing that's ever been said about this world is that it's a school. Uh, and we're learning something here. We don't know quite what it is, because I get back always to the fact that you, you've said that we really don't know what the afterlife is. But, Raymond, can you give us your best thoughts about that? You must have thought about what it's like and what it is. I know that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, even then in, in he has a his book is very deeply engaged with uh, the afterlife and uh, what it is. And uh, I have a friend, Elizabeth Crone, who wrote a book called Struck by Lightning, who she was walking into a church and with her children, and they were struck by lightning, and she was killed. They weren't. Mm-hmm. In fact, they ran on into this church, and so did she. And everyone was rushing to help because, you know, it happened in the parking lot and the children were boy, little boys were terrified. And she was saying to everyone, don't worry. We're all right. We're all right. And after a while, she noticed nobody was talking to her, only the children. And then she saw this heap of junk and a smoking umbrella out in the, uh, in the, uh, parking lot. Went out back there. Thought, my God, that's not a heap of junk. That's me. I'm dead. Yes, I've heard that same kind of account many times. But it's like it's what is stranger, but that it may take a moment to recognize. uh, One of the early guys I talked to was telling me about he fell off a sign onto a high power electric wires and. And he was telling me in his near-death experience, he said he was in the hospital and he's looking, a whole bunch of people were encircling this poor guy. And, you know, it was all these injuries. So he said he was kind of looking around and said, oh, my God, it's me. You know, you you don't necessarily recognize yourself. Right. And, and then you should deal with Tony as well, Tony Socorro. Oh, yeah. Uh, Tony Chicoria is a, a PhD in physiology and MD and an eminent um, 
orthopedic surger, surgeon who was a professor of orthopedic surgery at NYU, as I recall, who in 1994 was struck on in the neck by a bolt of lightning and had a cardiac arrest on the spot. And uh, when he came back from it, there was a nurse right there at the scene who resuscitated him, but he said he went into hyper reality, right? He went, he looked, they were at a uh, re, uh, resort center and it was a family reunion. He, he could see everybody, right? While he was out of his body. And he was talking to them like how this is far more real than what you and I are experiencing now. This is like hyper reality. And so uh, Anthony had never had any interest in music. Prior to this, but after his revival and transformation, he unaccountably developed an interest in the piano and started having a recurrent dream of playing the same piece on a piano on a concert stage. And so then he learned how to transcribe music to transcribe the piece and learn how to play the piano. And now, in addition to being a renowned you know, orthopedic surgeon is also a concert pianist. Who they, I heard recently he had a concert in Vienna. And, um, and that's amazing. It is. And, and, yeah. and, and Whitley, Whitley, that does not fit in with what you and I and Paul know is consensual reality. And this happens, this is something who have near death experiences. Uh, there's a, uh, I mean, Tony became a, a expert concert pianist. Uh, other people become artists that they're somehow gifted, blessed, if you yes, will. They are by by some by crossing over the line. So it, it's yeah, somewhat- I've never stepped away from the Greeks' perspective on uh, creativity, which is that it's a paranormal phenomenon. Yeah, <laughs> you know, That's I mean, a very interesting idea, and it's of course central to, to Greek culture. It is because you know, essentially, that the gods are the, the muses, right? Yes. It was when you had your you were creative meant you were consorting with your muse. And as I have gone around the country for decades, is I hear this from artists all the time. They say this doesn't come from me. It's like it comes from, and they point upward, right? And so creativity is, it's since the near death experience is such an extraordinary state of consciousness, it makes a certain amount of sense that somebody who had a near death experience that might tap open their creative side too. Decades ago, I met this wonderful elderly woman in Toronto who had never had any interest in painting, but then had a near death experience. And started being a painter, and she brought some of her artwork to me in her big zipper case. But it was she it was a, an award-winning artist in Canada, and I mean that's not the only. I mean, I I bet you've heard stories like that too. It's like oh sure, sure I have. I I want to talk a little bit about, and I, I have to say that I'm if you don't want to speak of this, I think I found it in the book. I read the whole book, but uh. I, I'm pretty sure that may, maybe I did about people who don't know they're dead. Yeah, is, is that in there anywhere? Or am I reading that? Would I read that somewhere else? 
I think well, that's been in I've, I've heard that from a lot of people. Yeah. George Ritchie, I hope you got to interview him at some point, Whitley, but George, uh, you know, and, and, and all invariably the ones that I hear this from are people who the cardiac arrest went on so long. It just doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And, uh-huh. and, and what they say is that they become aware that right here among us, there are other people who, for want of a better expression, they don't quite get it that they're dead. So they're repeating some action. And that, and George and others who told me this said that it's not anything bad. It's just that they say even in and among them, there are people that are kind of trying to wake them up. But it's just like. That's right. It, it, the Monroe Institute, they have a whole course on helping uh-huh. the dead to, who don't know that they're dead to wake up. Paul, you had something to add to this, I believe. Uh, what did I have to add to this? Oh, well, oh, yeah, here I do, as a matter of fact. Is that oftentimes these people uh, who have near, profound near-death experiences, they go in, they go to the two that I, I hear most of the time are they either go into a beautiful pastoral uh, area, and that's heaven, or they go to a city of knowledge, which is also a form of heaven. And, and many of these people will go into a library of knowledge that they then, uh, uh, they then pick up all kinds of information. Yet when they come back, they're frustrated because a lot of this information didn't stick with them. Is that correct, Raymond? Yeah, yeah, I hear that a lot. I mean, you know, it's a small fraction of the ones I've heard, but, you know, that adds up to a lot of people over the years. Have said that, including this wonderful woman from New England who's just as one of the most brilliant people I ever met. And um, she was telling me about how frustrating that was. She, you know, she was there in this, all knowledge was instantly accessible and she was satisfied. Oh, wow. Now this is going to, and then pulled back here and, Oh, you can't remember it. And it's uh, George Ritchie said something similar. He said that he, he said to him, he, he said, if you try to imagine Caltech and MIT and Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Brown and all of them squeezed into one place, you can't even begin to imagine this. Yeah. It's that and knowledge is is instantly accessible. By the way, one of the things he said is, um, he said he kind of, it's you 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 know you run out of terminology, but if you can imagine it like an, a library, he said he became a one aware of one area of this library which consisted of the holy books of the universe. My word. Yeah. Did he did he, did he bring back any Yeah, by the way, he, this, this happened when he was twenty years old and he became a very successful and beloved physician and huh. and the the director, the president of the Virginia Medical Association, and then went back to Charlottesville to get his psychiatry training and became a beloved psychiatrist. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and George was with all of these astonishing things he said. Nonetheless, he was just so, well, he was completely down to earth. Mm-hmm. 
Well, we have certainly gone on a wonderful journey today. I'd like to end in a particular way. The, the word love was mentioned earlier, and the, the barrier between us and this world that you're beginning to, to more than stick your toe in, Raymond, and, you're, and you too, Paul, is fear. And uh, the, you know, and the, the antidote is love. One of the most extraordinary things my wife ever said uh, is she became enlightened toward the end of her life. And I asked her, are you? It it will actually see the light. Well, she said, I said, what is enlightenment? And she said, enlightenment is what happens when there's nothing left of us but love. Yeah. And. This wow. is so important, this, this love. Uh, it, it, and I think, Paul, why don't you start and tell us about the, your thoughts about the energy of this magnetic attraction to what is good and beautiful in others, this love, if you have anything to add to it. You know, well, we, everybody that we talk to... I, 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 everybody that I talk to says it all comes down to love and it all comes down to love and light. And uh, the, the fact that they pull in so much love from this light, uh, it's not, I don't think possible to know why other than it just does happen. But there's that there's all like the kids said, there's all go to the light. It's full of good things. And, and that, and that, last their entire life the feeling that the feeling they had with that light transformation will last their entire life i mean we found that out by talking to people who had had near-death experiences as children and then we got to them when they were in their 50s 60s and uh uh, they said it's, it's always with them that they can always rely on it for comfort Raymond, I would like to ask to approach this with you in a slightly different way. What would we be like if the barrier of fear that shields the real world and also the afterlife from us was gone? Mm -hmm. What would we be like? Well, thank you, Whitley, for that question, because number one, it is close to hand. You know, the... um, the the it, from the history of Western thought, the most incisive thing ever said about that was from the great Hume, who, as you know, influenced Einstein and a lot of other people. And what Hume said was that it's by the mere light of reason, it seems difficult to prove the immortality of the soul. Some new species of logic is requisite for that purpose, and some new faculties of the mind that they may enable us to comprehend that logic. Then go up to A.J. Ayer. Maybe you read about him in college. But Oh, yes. Yeah. And you remember, And by the way, listen, I got this the most amazing thing. I read, probably like you did, Language, Truth, and Logic when I was 18 or 19 at the University of Virginia. Okay. And, and one of the things he says in there is that the whole notion of an afterlife is unintelligible. Right, that it makes no sense, and that was the logical positivist. <laughs> right. Well, that was say 1963. I read that. Flash forward about early 80s, mid 80s. I, I I was in London on a 
just lecturing and all. And in the middle of the night, I went to a, um, radio, a BBC radio program and stepped in there and it did just going to interview me in the middle of the night. And there in the green room was AJ Ayer, <laughs> <laughs> who had a near death experience. That's so when I had read about his near death experience and I was thinking, well, maybe it's, you know, it's the, article was so vague you know maybe he's retracted it so i was kind of thinking he was not gonna but i sat down and you know we're talking and i said do you think it was a delirium and very emphatically he said no absolutely not and and saying like it's more real than real right and he said it was directed to me he knew it when he didn't say who had directed it to him but he somebody had directed it to him because he said what i was most interested in was time and that's what the near-death experience informed me about. So, but was he still, still an atheist after that? Hmm? Was he still an atheist after well, having? He, we didn't go into that, but he sure he accepted that his experience was real. Now, where I and and answer to your question, really, where about the love and where this is going? I think one aspect of it that we need to think about is the developmental side of it. That love is not a fixed constant, it's, it's a developing concept. And romantic love, for example, well, nobody ever points this out, but I just think, I mean, I don't know where that came from, but I'm assuming romantic, romance is the novel, right, in, in French. So, I mean, I'm assuming that romantic love is about the story. It's like people in romantic love, love to tell their origin story and how they met, you know, and 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 then there's the other the love you feel for your children, which is so inexpressible. And so what I have come to see is that within this framework we're in, it's really possible, I don't think, to attain that level of love that can, you know, that you're exposed to on the other side. And um, and so but but I think that you can see in the. That that expression, the happiest life is a life of service to others. <laughs> when we're a kid, we hear that as an ideal, right? Yes. Right? Then you get into midlife and you hear it as an aspiration. I'd really like to get out there in Somalia and help those people, right? <laughs> but then by the time that you're the age of us here, the three of us, it's just a fact of experience because you learn just whenever you're out, out for yourself, you're always miserable, right? It's it's like only when you can get into that framework, the, the purpose of life and what makes you happy is to help other people. That's, you know, and so that's where it's headed, and it's a developmental process. George told me one time in 1976 or 77, he said, Raymond, this experience makes your humanity even more of a burden in a way. And he was a very kind-hearted person. He wouldn't have said it like I'm going to say it right now, but I've heard this from a lot of people. 
that even after you've had this near-death experience and this vision of love, let's face it, it's very hard to get through the average day without wanting to choke at least one person. <laughs> and that, well, I live in Los Angeles. I agree with you. There, and that, you see, that is a fact to life, but that what I've seen with the people with near-death experiences is that over time, it, it does, they do a good job of it. I would like to thank you both for being with us. It has been a truly remarkable experience. What a journey we've taken over this hour, a little more than an hour together. God bless both of you and on, on the on the way that you're on. And Raymond, I think that when you cross over, there's going to be a lot of excitement. If you can come back and tell us something about it, please do. Well, maybe so. I don't think that <laughs> By any I'm way. assuming you're behind him in age, Paul. I could be wrong, but uh, I have a few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, I'm just, I'm just want to thank all the people listening in too, and you know, putting up with us for this time. So, yeah. thanks to the audience too. Proof of life after life: seven reasons to believe there is an afterlife. Get it, folks. You need to be empowered. And you need to be able to step beyond the fear into love. And that's ultimately what this book, this gentle, beautiful book, is all about. Thank you, Whitley. Thank you. You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.